art didn't have the same grip on me. Like I didn't have to do it like breathing, like my friends did. And that in that way, I didn't I didn't have to do that or do nothing. I could do other things and be happy and still be in the, the world of, of artists. Welcome back to Basic Brain Heart, the show where we celebrate and interrogate creatives of all stripes. I'm Hannah Camacho. When I say all stripes, I mean it. And that's one reason why I'm particularly excited about today's episode with Kim Adams. Kim has got a lot of varied experience and the fact that she's been willing to jump in and learn and grow along the way I think has set her up for really uh, some, some unique superpowers in the business. She started out as an editor after moving from Michigan to LA, really was in tune with not only the people she was working with but really her own strengths and, um, and she worked for several years at Pixar um, on the leadership team and also in recent years has sort of moved on to working with Google uh, as a key player in the, the spotlight stories arena, learning how storytelling works in the virtual reality world, which is a lot harder than it sounds, as you've heard us talk about in previous episodes. And these days, she's working with some companies we can't necessarily mention because she's working on some super secret projects in the augmented reality and virtual reality realms. Just believe me when I say um, it's impressive work and I really look forward to seeing how it evolves and emerges. But um, Kim really shared some really insightful things in terms of what she's learned working with creative teams and technical teams and some even really honest about mistakes she's made along the way that have informed her growth as a person and as a producer and a leader. And um, I just really found her demeanor very refreshing and real and kind Really, no matter what stage of life or industry you find yourself in these days, I think you're going to get a lot out of this. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the lovely Kim Adams. All right. Well, Kim, I'm really excited to have you on today because for a while we've had purely creatives, people who aren't necessarily so much into the production side of things. And so I am really excited to hear your background, the wisdom you've learned over the years. And uh, I'm really appreciative that you took some time to chat today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to chat today. Of course. And I know we're going to be respectful about what you're working on, some super secret uh, projects these days. <laughs> um, but if uh, let's, let's just go ahead and dive into your background so we can learn about some of the work and things that you have done and what led you to make those choices, even in school. Where did you grow up? Sure. Um, I grew up in Michigan, um, sort of in uh, suburbia. And... Um, my family was really into the arts and we had, my grandmother was a concert pianist and my gra grandfather was an attorney, but he used to recite Shakespeare at the drop of a hat, you know, and we had all kinds of artists and my, my uncle actually owned the, the town movie theater. Um, so I just, yeah, so I just sort of grew up with storytelling and kind of gathering around people for dramatic storytelling <laughs> and theater and, you know, barbershop quartets and all kinds of stuff. Um, so I really fell in love with, with artists growing up. And I think that's why I was kind of drawn to, to artists and, um, actually was a theater major in high school and then in college thinking that was, uh, the road I wanted to go down. Um, and sort of, you know, I, theater had kind of become my tribe. I was super shy growing up and I kind of didn't find my tribe until I got into theater. So mm. Um, now, most... was the performance side what really attracted you, or really was it kind of everything that went into it in the production as a whole? Yeah, I think it was everything. I think it was, um, you know, uh, honestly, I think when I look back on it, it was less of my own wanting to be on the stage and more of my wanting to be in close proximity of those artists, you know, oh, of those yeah. 
super passionate people um, who were so colorful and creative and imaginative. And I just loved being in those worlds where you're creating, you know, a whole world from a blank stage. Um, so kind of fell in love with that and then took that all the way into, into college. Um, and then realized along the way, you know, there were people that I was friends with that were much, much better, uh, performers than I was. And, you know, they were, I, you know, they had graduated from college and they were waiting tables and, I thought, you know, this is such a rough road for a, to be an to be an artist, and I realized I didn't have the same the art didn't have the same grip on me. Like I didn't have to do it like breathing, like my friends did, um, and that in that way I didn't I didn't have to do that or do nothing. I could do other things and be happy and still be in the the world of of artists. Did you have that level of clarity when you were sort of in that stage of life? Or do you feel like you have more clarity now looking back? Yeah, I think definitely hindsight is always, <laughs> always best, right? And you're like, oh, it was completely clear to me. But no, at the time, I just sort of um, it was just drawn into that world and, and wasn't quite sure, but knew that acting ultimately wasn't going to be it for me. And then I wasn't sure what to do. I, I had gotten <clears throat> an internship at ILM. And, um, that was kind of funny. They, um, I applied for the internship it was super competitive and, and, um, they, I kept calling them to say, have you, have you selected the interns yet? And no, we'll call you. We'll call you. We'll call you when we, when we decide, you know, basically like stop calling us. So I, um, <laughs> with my, with my number all over it so that they would call me and give me the internship. <laughs> which they did. Woo. So it, it worked pretty well. And, um, and so I started working there and that really solidified like, you know, Oh my God, this is, this is where I want to be. I mean, one day I was walking across the lot and it was sunny outside, you know, like a nice day, like 70 degrees and it started snowing. And I looked and I was like, what's happening? And I guess they were shooting a, like an old spice commercial on the stage. And snow is coming down, but it was just one of those moments where, where I did have a, a huge moment of clarity there. And just, if there's a world where this thing, this kind of thing is a normal occurrence, I, I want this, you know, I don't, I don't want love. And, you know, my mom growing up, my, my mom worked really hard and she, she didn't usually, I don't want to say not ever, but she didn't usually have jobs that she liked. So hmm. she would always, the common refrain sort of around the dinner table was promise me you'll always do something that you love. Oh, wow. So I kind of had that as a, a backdrop. That's to amazing. My choices, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, so I, I worked at ILM and, um, became, I was hired as a production assistant after my internship and that was my first job in the industry. Um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And, um, and then decided to move to LA, um, based on some advice of a, a DP I met, um, saying not, don't stay in one place too long. Um, and so I, I moved to LA and, uh, at that point I had decided I wanted to be an editor and, um, because I, I'd fallen in love with editing in college as, as well as acting. I, I took, I was a film major, um, and just fell in love. I was editing on super eight film 
<laughs> so this tiny little splicing tape and these tiny little splicers and but I got completely wrapped up in it and I just I fell in love with the art of you know the combination of images creating a new thought or image or feeling and um so thought you know there's a lot of women editors um and it seems like a key partnership with the director you know you really are actively shaping the vision of the story and working in partnership in terms of what the story gets produced. Um, so I decided to get into editing and um, moved to LA, not knowing anyone except <laughs> my, my boyfriend that I moved with. I had like a, a list of 15 people um, that I was referred to by wow. my, my Pixar. Wow. And uh, yeah, I just kind of hit the ground running there and waitressed and worked at a hospital and worked for free on films and tried to get people to to go out to coffee with me and give me advice and introduce me to other people. And um, did you just... find that really hard? Cause I, I can imagine in um, such a competitive um, area, such as LA, everyone's asking everyone else for coffee. Was there anything that you did <laughs> um, to kind of stand out or add value um, to kind of make people want to say yes to you? Did you find anything specifically helpful as you were building I... relationships? Yeah. I think the main thing is being, you know, just being nice, first of all, <laughs> and it helped, call. <laughs> it, it helped that the first list of 15 people were really nice people who tended to have really nice friends. Um, and it's kind of the expectation in LA that you'll do that, that you will reach out. And there is, they feel like there is, um, an obligation to, to help one another because along the way in that freelance world, everybody kind of helps everybody, you know? Um, and so it's a really nice culture in that way. And so it wasn't always that if they wouldn't meet that they didn't want to, but they were swamped on a job, you know, and they would say, and I'd say, oh, okay, when do you want me to check back with you? And they'd tell me when, and I would write it in my, at that time we had Franklin planners. I write it in my planner, <laughs> you know, call Conrad Buff back or whoever, you know, the editor was that I was trying to meet with. Um, and I was just really persistent. And I think people responded well to that. And I was kind and I didn't, I didn't hound them. You know, I said, Hey, when we talked a few months ago, you mentioned this might be a good time to connect. And, um, but I was, it was so hard. I mean, some days I, I would sit there and I just was feeling depressed and like, couldn't find anything. And I was like, just couldn't get myself. I'd make myself call people. And when I made myself call people out of that place of like, just feeling like this is really hard and I'm you know, I don't have anything to offer and, you know, where you go to that place. Yeah. I just, I wouldn't do it. I would wait until I felt pretty good. And then I'd make a call and coming out of that call, you know, I'd probably be super excited because they were very responsive and they wanted to meet. And then I would just, I would just go with that. And I would just kind of be like, okay, I'm going to call as many people as I can right now because I'm feeling great. And people are happy to get a call from a happy person. Absolutely. Right. Uh, That's really smart. So yeah, it's I just, brilliant. <laughs> persistent, but it did take at least, um, I want to say it took over a year, maybe a year and a half. And I, of working for free, I worked on a, uh, I did my time at Roger Corman's company and worked for free as an apprentice <laughs> there. Oh boy. And, uh, that's where they were warning you, like, don't stay after dark because the rats come room when it <laughs> Did you ever make that mistake and see um, the rats come that out? That kind of stuff. They had... 
Absolutely not. I was out of there so fast. <laughs> I mean, I, I would have my peanut butter and jelly craft service and then I would, I would go home to Valencia, um, which is like way far out of town, but it's the only place we could afford. Um, so I did my time there and then eventually, you know, I had, when I had worked for free on a number of things, finally somebody recommended me. Um, but I was working for free to learn. I was like, okay, what, what like 10 things do I need to learn in order to be able to get paid for this? Um, and people would outline for me, oh, you need to learn how to log film, code film, rewind film, load up the cam at that point because we didn't have Avids um, and sort, you know, and learn with trim bins or whatever. Um, so I go, okay, great. So they would teach me those things. Uh, they would do it happily since I was working for free for them. <laughs> and then obligated to run me when the time came and, you know, a friend of theirs needed an apprentice. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of how, how I started and I moved up the chain in editing. That's really cool. Did you find it um, everything that you hoped it would be? Or did you get to a point where you thought, I, I, I enjoy this, it's good to know, but I don't think this is what I am meant to do long term? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was in it for a long time. There's a whole sort of 10 year process at that point where you're an apprentice and then a second assistant editor and then a first assistant editor. And um, and I was working in picture, which was the big deal, feature films and picture picture editing. And, um, you know, I did it for about 10 years, but along the way, I definitely sort of, I mean, it was fascinating. And I was working with these storytellers like Walter Murch and, you know, you know, worked with, um, uh, John Frankenheimer and Oliver Stone, you know, amazing directors. And to be able to be in the cutting room with them and their editors, just listening and watching them craft the story was incredible. And it taught me, it taught me so much about storytelling and it, taught me so much. I mean, it really solidified my work ethic hmm. um, because it was grueling too. Like I bet. Would work, like they own you, you know, or they used to, I, I think it's probably, probably it's still, still the same way, but you know, I missed birthdays and holidays and I would work sometimes 36 or 40 hours straight, work 21, 25 days straight without a day off, just like around the clock, um, really, really hard work. Um, and, but at a certain point, like I started to kind of, my personality just kind of expanded out of the room. I mean, I became really good at networking just because, you know, in the freelance world, you have to, you're on one movie, but that's it. You need to be looking for your next movie. And so, you know, I'd be off if we had a little break or we were waiting on something, I'd be off down the hall chatting with the, the other cutting room, um, you know, getting to know them and what their needs were. And, and then I would start connecting other people who were finishing on our show with them. I was like, oh, there's so-and-so down the hall needs somebody. Um, so, um, yeah, so I became really adept at, at that and I became more outward facing and more active and, um, it was, became really hard to, to sit in that little tiny room, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, with heads down, just yes. doing that incredibly, um, detail oriented work, mm. you know? Um, and so, I had one point when the first assistant editor said to me when she couldn't find me, I was down the hall. She was like, you know, you really should get into production. You're not really cut out for this anymore. And I was so hurt and so offended. Um, but I, it was the beginning of me thinking, you know, I think she might be right. Um, and then I, uh, a couple years, maybe it was a year or two later, I had the opportunity to go back to school, to grad school at UCLA in the producer's program. Um, it was, was there only 12 people accepted that year and somehow I was recommended and got in, um, to my own surprise. And I'd never planned to go back to school. 
Um, but that was amazing. And that kind of just set my course more toward production. Um, so that's so interesting. And when, when, you, when you started to kind of dip your toe into that world, the production world, did you immediately feel like, oh, I think this is where I belong? Or did it take some time to kind of feel like, yes, this is, this is kind of my, my, I guess, jam for lack of a better term? Yeah, it, I think it took a little while. I, I did quickly fall in love with it and because it was so new too, right? So I was studying, you know, budgets and working, partnering with writers because we partnered really closely with the screenwriting program. And then I, in life, became a, a partner to a, a writer-director and started indie producing for for that company, um, for his stuff that he was writing while I was kind of living and breathing everything production um, and also still supporting myself, um, by editing. So I was working like on office space, um, while I was, oh, while I was going to school <laughs> at night and then producing indie producing on the side and just taking meetings. So I would go to school and we would talk about casting and then I would have a meeting with a casting director, um, for a project. So it was, it was super immersive time and I did fall in love with sort of all the opportunity. Um, but I didn't yet, you know, I, I certainly didn't fall into a paying job right away. Um, so even when I, even when I came out of the producer's program, um, I was a development exec for a while and then I went back into editing, um, until for a couple of years until I could, I got hired as a, a visual effects coordinator, hmm. um, at a, a company called Asylum Visual Effects, which was somewhat of an asylum. <laughs> nutty, nutty place. <laughs> Do you remember in the beginning, were there any uh, rookie mistakes that you made that you really learned from or things looking back, you kind of were like, yeah, I kind of changed the way I thought about things or did things in that at that time. And it's really affected my entire career. And does anything come to mind? I, yeah, I mean, I think I work significantly differently than I, than I did back then. I think you, you just kind of learn big lessons along the way, often from making some mistakes. <laughs> um, but one of the things I learned in editing, and this was so great, my first apprentice job, when I would make a mistake, um, and screw up and I would just you know, be like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. And, and the assistant would just say, listen, it's good. This is the way we learn. Like it's experiential. Now I know you're never going to, you're never going to make that mistake again because you just made it. Um, and it's true. It's sort of like, if you make a big enough mistake, you can be pretty sure that you're not going to make the same mistake again, which is the good part about it. Um, you know, I, I used to push really hard. I mean, all the way up through and, and also environmentally, it's different. LA is a very different environment than working I think even in New York, but definitely than working in Northern California, um, where everybody's more polite, you know, but in LA, it's just sort of like, you barely even say hello before you're like, Hey, listen, I know you're closed today, but I need you to open up Technicolor for us because we're desperate for this thing. And everything is of the utmost important and you're constantly pushing and it's kind of socially acceptable, you know, like everyone knows that everything is crazy. Nobody has enough time or money. Um, or resources. And so everyone's nuts all the time. Absolutely. Um, and it's just kind of this crazy, um, accepted culture hmm. that I wasn't wild about. Um, sure. it's part of the reason why I moved up, but you know, cut to working at Pixar years later, trying to get through an agenda with, um, John Lasseter and a team from Disney that was visiting. Um, all I had on my mind was like, I needed to get answers for these three things, you know? And so I posed the question and they would discuss it and I would pose the question again. And then 
John would take a moment of silence and be thinking about it in his head. And I would interrupt that and ask again. And at one point he just looked at me, <laughs> he turned his head, he turned his whole body, I think, and just stared at me and I stopped mid sentence. Um, and then he paused and he went back and finished his thought. And then, you know, everything was covered within the meeting, but I just thought, God, he didn't even say anything to me. And I felt like, wow, that was huge. That was a huge lesson. So anyway, he was leaving. And I was like, Hey, John, I'm so sorry. He's like, yeah, sometimes you just got to give it a minute. And I said, you know what? I totally get it. That'll never happen again. Um, and it didn't like, I, I'm really conscious now of letting things happen as they will. And if you don't get to every single thing, sometimes it's okay. There's another way, there's another way around it, or you follow up, or sometimes it's just not the time for someone to be pushing things. Sometimes it's a time and a conversation to be exploring mm -hmm. or listening. And that kind of goes back to um, the point you made earlier, which was you love partnering with artists and sort of being um, a part of the process and, and uh, supporting artists as they're doing their work. Did you start learning anything interesting, especially within animation, in terms of keeping the project moving while at the same time allowing for maximum creativity? Um, was that ever a challenge? And if so, how did you learn to navigate working with people and keeping them on task, but at the same time wanting to champion the creative side of things? Yeah, it's always a really tricky balance, right? Because if you, again, if you push too hard, you kill it. Um, you know, if you push and you start to micromanage everything, um, you kill it. So there has to be room to let the team breathe, to let, there has to be, um, there's certain things that artists need to create their best work. And one of those is like a safe work environment. And I mean, safe in terms of, um, we can throw out bad ideas here, you know, and it's, it doesn't mean anything. Like we're just all about putting it all out there and drawing and brainstorming and, and this, this freedom to express and explore. And, um, you know, that's really important. And I think that you can't be moving so fast that you don't leave room for that. I mean, the whole reason why you're moving fast is to, is to have this amazing thing be created out of nothing. Um, and so people need time and space to do that. And I think it's, you know, the best teams really, or the best leaders um, on those teams really take the temperature along the way, or they at least task uh, managers to take the temperature of their teams. And, and they can come and say, you know, the shading department really needs a break. <laughs> or the mood, the mood is very quiet in there right now. And, you know, I'm like, okay, let's get everybody out. Let's go bowling. Um, or let's take a trip to the museum on Friday, or let's have a cookie baking contest, or, you know, um, there's gotta be a good balance. Obviously you can't do tons of that. Um, but you need to do enough to bring some joy to people. And also people get inspired by life itself, right? So getting out, going to the museum, going outside, seeing how the natural light is playing on, you know, the shadows it's causing from the trees at this time of day, or, you know, might inform something they're working on that they've been stuck on, you know? Absolutely. And a lot of people, I think, think of um, Pixar and Disney as um, some of the top, of course, storytelling agencies in the world currently. And I was, I was, I found it so interesting watching the talk that you gave. I believe in was it Portland last year? Yeah, the Portland Creative Conference. Yeah, um, because you know you were triple booked constantly, and the amount of <laughs> interviewing you had to do for the role itself was unbelievable. Um, and it just seemed like it was so incredibly busy all the time. 
that I was curious about um, the work-life balance and it, it doesn't sound like there was much but at the same <laughs> time there's an expectation of these um, incredible stories sort of to, to be churned out um, over a process of years so that's that's an interesting uh, tidbit to hear yeah it's funny um, yeah there was not a lot of work-life balance uh, during <laughs> that imagine. time <laughs> I, mean, I, I kind of I was thrown into that world I mean part of it was I was just coming up to speed for the first year right on how to produce an animation yeah, yeah. learning learning that pipeline and my producer who hired me Corey Ray um, quickly got swept over onto um, Monsters Inc to, or Monsters University to produce that so I was left with this this awesome team but then they decided to expand that team and create kind of a new shorts division focused on the cars and Toy Story characters and then also um I was tasked with helping to found um, or helping to open Pixar Canada. So that was huge. So we were, yes, and we're creating a pipeline between the stu two studios that had never been, they'd never worked with an outside studio, even though they owned it. It was still hammering that out and what it was their culture, how were we going to work together and hand off work and oversee the work. And culturally, there were just, there was a ton there. Plus there were seven directors brand new directors who all really, really needed that producer partnership and mentorship, mentorship with other directors because they had never, um, most of them hadn't directed before. They were um, anim soups or heads of story or, or folks that had really interesting pitches that, that the studio wanted to give a chance to. So, you know, we were doing a lot of things differently than the rest of the studio. And, um, it was super stressful, you know, plus being brand new. Plus it was my first real kind of corporate job. I mean, Pixar is not a huge corporation. It was like 1100 people, but I had been freelancing from film to film for 17 years before I started there. So uh, suddenly I was part of the leadership team of the studio. I mean, the producers really collectively help, um, you know, run, run the studio. It was nerve wracking, terrifying, um, you know, as head of this new division, I was working with John Lasseter every week, um, because he was very hands-on executive producing, um, these short films, they meant a lot to him. These were his characters. It was like his family, you know? Um, so yeah. And I had an eight month old baby when I started. <laughs> so I, and she wasn't sleeping and I wasn't sleeping. So sometimes I would, I would run out at lunch for 30 minutes and just sleep in my car, um, during the day, just to get a quick cat nap and then back in and I really was running sometimes I'd, I'd catch the first 10 minutes of one meeting the middle 10 minutes of another and catch the end of another meeting and it was like that all day every day the only time I could talk to my assistant about scheduling my time was walking into the building or running out to the building to go pick up my daughter at daycare oh my so goodness I can't even imagine <laughs> I would die. <laughs> I would die the first day <laughs> It was crazy, but it also was amazing. I mean, frequently in life and our careers, and I'm sure you found this as well, that the most, um, the craziest, most challenging experiences are all also the best, you know, and you learn the most. So, um, I didn't, I think I, what I tried to do is really be off my phone and off my computer when I was with my daughter, at least. Um, so that I was super focused on her and then, you know, she would get to bed and then I would have about three hours of emails to do because I hadn't been able to be online because I would be in meetings all day. So I'd be blocking a bunch of stuff unless I checked, checked my emails and approved, made approvals or whatever. So 
it was rough. And that was one of the big lessons. So, so at the end of that time, I was totally depleted. My team was unhappy with me. They liked me, but they said, you know, listen, she's super stressed out (laughs) Um, and she's, you know, she's super crazy. She's, you know, I was, I was not who I know myself to be. You know, I was stepping on people's words. I was interrupting people in meetings. I, the things that I see in other leaders, some of the other leaders that I've worked with that now I get, I see them and I immediately empathize with where they are. Because uh, I know I've been there, you know, where you're so stressed, you can't even wait for someone to finish their sentence. Um, and so I came out of that like, okay. And I had, you know, I had asked for support. They didn't see the need for it. It's I sort of let it go a little bit too far and I got really depleted. And, um, and I learned lots of great lessons about that, about mostly about myself and, and creating some better boundaries and having a stronger voice about what the needs were for myself and my team and stuff like that. Absolutely. No, that's, I I think I love that you're so transparent about that because I think a lot of people get to that point, um, but they don't identify it in themselves and then things just become worse and worse. Um, yeah. And as you were in that time, it, and one theme I've certainly heard you mention in, in the talk that you gave at Portland, um, but also even during this conversation is um, that one tip you received earlier in your career was don't stay in one place too long. Um, <laughs> do you feel like that's the best tip you've ever received as it relates to being um, constantly learning and bettering your craft? Or is there something else that might, you might sort of place in that top spot in terms of um, some really great advice that has helped to shape your career and make you a better producer and or leader? There's so many things. I mean, I've been so lucky to have some really incredible mentors. Um, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is, um, one of my producers at Pixar, who's a mentor, um, said, you know, she was just talking about her own team and she said, you know, I've realized that when I'm upset with one of my team members, I am actually angry at myself underneath that. So I'm saying to myself, why didn't I catch this? Why didn't I see this? Why didn't I check in on this? Why didn't I you know, support them more? Why didn't I give them this resource? Or, you know what I mean? Like underneath being frustrated with the ask or the problem is a frustration with yourself. Um, and she said, you know, as I'm, if I can just be kinder to myself in those situations and accepting of myself, that can be kind and accepting. Oops, are you still there? Um, then I can be kind and accepting of my team. Um, and that to me was, really huge because the last thing I had thought of in that period was being kinder to myself, (laughs) you know, but it, it makes sense. If you're hard on yourself and you're a perfectionist, you're really hard on other people and have expectations and back to you being a perfectionist. No, that's, that's a fantastic point. And what, what does that look like? Like walk me through, um, what that might look like in a situation where, um, you've sort of learned to give yourself grace and you've been kind to yourself um, and a project's going fairly well, but you have a team member who sort of owns up to something that didn't work out like they were hoping to, they didn't meet a deadline. What does that look like in a really balanced way where you're still sort of keeping things moving along, uh, but also um, making them feel like uh, you're giving them grace and you're showing them kindness? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's all about understanding. And first it's about listening. Um, 
to them, they're probably having a really hard time coming to you with whatever it is that, that didn't work out. Um, and so having compassion for where they are and really listening before jumping, jumping on it and jumping on them and trying to even trying to add solutions, just listening to the whole situation, listening to what exactly trying to figure out what was missing for them, what, and how they could be better supported if there's still, if there's still time to fix it, or if it's just a, you know, learning for next time, um, you know, trying to help them find a, a place, um, to define what it was that happened. You know what I mean? Like, yes. Okay. This went the wrong direction, but isn't it great because we learned X, Y, and Z, and that's going to better inform our next project. And let's have a postmortem where we can share this with everyone. So everyone can benefit from this. Or, you know, just spinning it to finding out or, you know, even better, hey, what can I do? Um, who can I hire? Who can I task to your team? What kind of what's what's missing there? Really also owning, you know, things that were probably not their fault. Like, uh, I, you know what? And listen, it's probably if you had had, you know, stronger support in this area, they could have helped with this like that. That's not all on you. You know, we, we all need to own our part. It's rarely one person's fault when something goes wrong, you know? That's a great point. And I can imagine you're hitting a lot of moments similar to that because you're in emerging technologies where you're even just working to define the nomenclature itself. And there's <laughs> a lot of trial and error. So oh I can God. imagine that that skill is in full effect these days. <laughs> totally. Oh my God. No, it's just, there's a lot of laughter usually because it's like, what the heck? what are we doing here? What's this thing called? What are we going to call it? What this? do we call it? Yeah. It's like making up names for new stuff and new processes. And, um, you know, if you're lucky enough to, to be on a team that is not taking things too seriously, um, you can have fun with that, but, but it is, I mean, that's the great thing about new technology. I mean, the things that are the most frustrating about, uh, you know, VR and AR and new media and immersive, whatever, whatever are you're in, um, is that, I mean, it's, it's, it's so frustrating because you can't budget correctly, um, because, you know, typical contingency plan just doesn't hold up in this environment. You can't say 10% is good enough. You can't plan for a rain day on set or, you know, some drives going down in animation or you just, you can do your best based on your history and your past knowledge, but but it's really unknown. So that's really hard, you know, and it's, it's hard, but I think it's about putting the right team together. And in those environments, the best team is typically a team that's from film, but also from games and software development, and maybe even immersive theater um, to find the right combination of folks. That's I don't think I answered yeah. your, I didn't answer your question. No, though. well, you, you, you did a beautiful <laughs> job of it. That okay. actually leads me into a, a different question, which I wasn't necessarily planning on asking, but, um, as you're now hiring, you're probably in a position of occasionally hiring or even, um, at least being a part of the voices in the room who determine who does get hired. Mm -hmm. um, what are some things that that are deal killers for you if someone's in the interview process and maybe they're very skilled, but there's this or this that you look for that are red flags for you that you've learned maybe the hard way. Um, what do you look for when you're hiring someone? Um, well, the first thing I do is make sure we have gender parity in reviewing candidates. Yeah. Um, so I'll say, you know, listen, I don't want to consider anybody until we have 50, 50 representation 
for gender. And I know it might be harder to find usually women for tech roles, but you need to look harder. And then, then we could, um, so that's generally a good way to start. And then it's, um, it's all the things you would think of articulate folks. I mean, it's funny. I did a survey of colleagues and friends who were in virtual reality, um, about six months ago. And I said, you know, what do you think the, the main qualities are, or how do you think, how important do you think it is for someone to have had experience in, you know, in VR to be hired or in AR or in visual effects or tech or, you know, how important is that on one to five, five being very important? It was a three across the board. Mm, interesting. And these were execs, they were producers, they were tech soups, they were um, all different kinds of people. And they just said, you know, it's great if you have experience in traditional entertainment, but it's not even necessary right now because so much is new that it's really about, for me, always about attitude. Like there's a certain kind of person who's a production person and you, you know it when you're talking to them, they just get it. They get it. They're on it. You can see them knowing what you're going to say before you say it. And you can imagine them doing what you need before you ask for it. You know, there is a certain kind of energy that they just get. Um, that person's usually leaning forward in their chair and not sitting way back and being too casual. You know, that person sends a follow-up note. It, yep. might be old, well, it might be old fashioned, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, you know, when I get that, like, thank you so much for your time. It was great meeting you. Um, that's really important, you know, and it shows that they own follow-up, um, and people who are persistent, but not obnoxious about it. I, I've had people be obnoxious about it, um, or, or sort of act entitled that they need to get some of my time. Um, you know, you need to be gracious and, and appreciative. Um, and like I said, even if you don't have experience in the tech, um, you know, there are things that you look for. I mean, I actually really love hiring people who have had restaurant experience because they can, they can multitask. They can deal with all kinds of personalities. They can work in a fast paced environment. They can think on their feet. Um, you can manage money. Like there's, <laughs> Everything. There's a bunch, a bunch the total package. That you learn or you look for people who've had experience, even if they're just out of college, like were they a TA? Were they, you know, the head of some committee? Were they, like you can see when people are drawn to leadership roles or leading teams, um, you, can, you can see it in their past experience. I love it. And one thing I really love about your story is, um, that you've not only, of course, worked in animation and live action, but you've also made a bit of a transition to tech over the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, so you've experienced quite a number of different industries. Um, and we were talking, of course, before we hit record a little bit about how sometimes you're the only woman in the room. That's just the <laughs> it's the nature of tech currently. I wonder if there's any any anecdotes or um, maybe experiences that you feel comfortable sharing that might illustrate um, some unique challenges that women face either in tech or animation or whatever may come to mind? Um, well, I was pretty fortunate in most of my career that I worked in in um, positions where there were a lot of women who came ahead of me, right? And editing, editing there are some really significant female editors who were incredible and recognized and also in production. I mean, um, you know, when I've worked in animation, most of the producers have been women. Um, but you really do see a lack of female representation at the executive level. I think in all studios and companies and areas, um, 
And so that's really unfortunate. Um, and that way it does still feel like a boys club and that's got to shift. Um, and I think that it, it starts with supporting each other in the room. Um, you know, there's that whole, uh, strategy of when a, a call, a female colleague gets cut off purposefully circling back to her and saying, you know, uh, Shirley was just, you know, let, let's let Shirley finish her sentence or as Shirley said, like acknowledging the ideas that come up, um, and circling back in the room. And then pretty soon that becomes the, the culture. Um, but I've benefited from that, um, from many of the men that I've worked with and I've always appreciated that. Like, Hey, it looks like, you know, Kim was trying to finish her sentence. Um, Let's hear what, what everybody has to say here. You know, and just, you have to make that effort. You shouldn't have to have to do that, but you do. You can be, otherwise, you, you just frequently get talked over, stepped on, um, not, not paid attention to, not acknowledged, or somebody else will repeat the same idea and get acknowledged for it, that kind of thing. Um, also, even in, spe I, know, I know execs who have uh, inclusion writer for speaking engagements where they won't be on a panel or moderate one unless there's a diverse, a diverse panel coming. And if there's not, they suggest people for them to invite. That's fantastic. Um, and I love that that term has gotten a lot of traction since the Oscars. Know, and now people, now you can actually use it and people know what you're talking about, which right. is beautiful. Yeah. No, it's so, so important. And um, I love it. Now, kind of circling back to um, the point that you've made uh, um, uh, previously, which was don't stay in one place too long. I kind of have some uh, questions around that. Or how do you know you've sort of reached the point where your growth has maybe slowed a bit? Um, how do you know it's time to start looking for something else personally um, in terms of your own career? For me, it's when I notice myself getting quiet when I, oh. when I start to question speaking in a room, mm -hmm. when my, my voice gets, uh, you know, quieter. Um, and it's not due to the fact like in the beginning of a new job, especially in a new area, like I'm working in AR now, which was new to me. And so I got quiet, you know, really early on because I, I needed to learn so much. Like I had to listen really hard to every conversation <laughs> until the new stuff started to sink in, you know? Um, but in other environments, like, you know, if, if I find myself just being more timid, like that's not my natural state, you know, um, I'm naturally confident and I feel like I have a lot to contribute, but if I'm feeling like I don't, or if I'm not contributing in a big way, um, I don't, and I don't feel like I'm using my core skill set or my superpowers, um, then I know I'm not being fulfilled. So so usually what I'll do is I'll try to change it internally first. I'll try to talk to folks or see like, hmm, what can I do so that I, I'm being better, you know, my skill set's being leveraged a little bit better. Um, how can I, you know, how can we turn this around? But if it's a situation where I'm not being respected or, or the writing, you know, writing on the wall becomes clear, like, you know, there's a, a, a certain, a certain road that everybody is on here and I'm just, this just isn't my road, you know? Um, then I've gotten, and what I do usually with a job is really be clear about what I, um, I'm learning, you know, or why I'm there, you know, this job is great because, you know, either I just love it and I love the people and I love the project or I'm learning what I need to know to get to my ultimate step. Um, 
you know, just trying to be clear about why you're there. So if you get, because not everybody has the luxury of leaving a job that's not right either. Right. So it's sort of like getting really clear on what you're getting out of it so that you can, I mean, and that sounds really heartless and strategic, but, but it's true. We need to be getting fulfillment out of where we're spending our days. So it's sort of like, well, it's getting me, you know, of course, money in your pocket, but beyond that, are you learning something? Are you growing? Are you meeting more people? Are you getting inspiration or are you somehow being allowed more time to work on the stuff that you do, you know, have passion for that you're writing at night or, you know what I mean? Like, does it allow a, a sense of stability or, you know, like what is it that you're getting out of it? And then pretty soon you can look at if what you're getting out of it is outweighed by what you're not getting out of it, it's time to go. That's great. And you mentioned um, leveraging your superpowers. What do you personally feel are your biggest, well, superpowers or strengths? What do you bring <laughs> to a job that's really unique? I feel like I'm able to bring a team together. I'm able to form a great team and a balanced team that's respectful, um, that's authentic. I think authenticity is definitely something that I... Um, I'm proud of being sometimes that, sometimes that can translate into being a little too transparent. Um, so I've learned over the years to be more strategic because there's certain things too, when you're leading a team, you want to be transparent, but you also don't want to worry your team. You know, there's always going to be things that come up at a high level that, that they don't need to know just because not because you're withholding them, but because you don't need them to worry about it because you have faith and based on your experience and your knowledge, it's going to work out it's okay not to be fully transparent sometimes. And sometimes it's the harder thing to do. It's easier to tell the team when you're stressed and why you're stressed, because they can share it with you. It's harder to hold on to that and work it out yourself and not tell them and, and to, because you don't want to worry them. Absolutely. And that's it's a, like that's a really parenting. good point. My wheels are turning now. <laughs> <laughs> how do you think, how do you think parenting and our hours almost up? So I want to be respectful of your mm -hmm. time, but how do you feel like parenting has impacted you professionally? Well, it definitely aligned my priorities, hmm. right? Cause you have that aha moment. Um, when you have a child about what's really important. I mean, I think for me, I was I was in that crazy busy time at Pixar when my daughter was eight months old until she started kindergarten. Um, and I left, I left three months after she had started kindergarten, but the day she started, I saw her, you know, she walked into that room and it was like, she got on a train set off in her own direction and I'll never forget just that feeling of God, you know, I, I missed so much. You know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a choice. I had a job and it was an amazing job, but it was super busy. And I did, I was really present with her when I was with her all the time, but boy, I wish I would have had more days just to be with her when she was only ours and she wasn't the world's yet, you know, so it, it quickly sort of prioritized. And then moving forward, you know, it was sort of like, um, I definitely would carve out time for family. And I do find that that people respect that most companies, at least here in the Bay area. Um, if you, if you create boundaries for your family, people respect that. And it also is a, it indicates to your team that this is accepted, right? If you're doing emails all weekend long, all hours of the night, if you're texting them too early or late at early in the morning or late at night, then they figure that's what's expected of them. But if they can't, um, you know, if they send you an email and you don't get back to them until Sunday night, it signifies like, listen, I respect the, the weekend as your space and your time. 
I did have one job where I, I was so behind in my work that I would email during the weekend, but I would say to them like, don't respond, don't respond. I'm just, you know, I'm not expecting you, but I realized that I, I just should have saved all those, should have drafted all those emails and sent them all, you know, early Monday morning, because even if I'm telling them don't respond, they, they see me working and they figure if, you know, if you're working with a bunch of perfectionists and they, you know, people trying to be exceptional, which I've been lucky to do, they're going to think, oh, that's what I should be doing. Or that's what, you know, that's what we do here. And, you know, it's certainly not the environment you want to create. People need to unplug in order to bring their best selves back to work. That's wonderful. I love it. And I've kept you long enough, but I do have one final question. Sure. (laughs) And that is, what do you enjoy most about what you're currently up to these days? I know you can't necessarily speak to what you're doing, but what do Mm -hmm. you find really fulfilling about working sort of in the AR, VR space? Um, I love, I mean, what I've always loved about producing, which is creating something out of nothing, you know, Uh, we're really creating magic. Like we're doing things in these fields that nobody has ever done before. Um, working with really brilliant people, um, and often, oftentimes also with really incredible creative minds. And it's that I always enjoy the dialogue between the engineers and the artists and, you know, watching them inspire each other because engineers really are, are, I feel like engineers are really artists. It's just their output is different, you know, Mm, their their output is ones and zeros, but they temperamentally, um, are a lot like artists. That's very Um, true. This has been so lovely, Kim. I'm so thankful. Thanks for for, uh, sharing an hour of your time with me. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.